If you enjoyed these podcasts, check out Byron Reese's newest book. It's about artificial intelligence and covers all the topics addressed on Voices in AI. It's called The Fourth Age, Smart Robots, Conscious Computers, and the Future of Humanity. And it's available now wherever fine books are sold. This is Voices in AI brought to you by GigaOM. I'm Byron Reese. Today, my guest is Marcus Noga. He's the VP of Machine Learning over at SAP. He holds a PhD in computer science from Karlsruhe's Institute of Technology. And he, prior to that, spent seven years over at Booz Allen Hamilton, working on helping businesses adopt and transform their businesses through IT. Welcome to the show, Marcus. Uh, Thank you, Byron, and it's a pleasure to be here today. Let's start off um, kind of like my question I have yet to have two people answer the same way. What is artificial intelligence? Ooh, that's a great one. Um, And it's sure something that few people can agree on. Um, I think that the textbook definitions mostly um, define that by analogy with human intelligence. And uh, human intelligence is also notoriously tricky and hard to define. Um, I, I define human intelligence as the ability to deal with the unknown and bring structure to the unstructured and answer uh, novel questions um, in um, a surprising, resourceful, and mindful way. Um, artificial intelligence in itself um, is a thing, um, rather more playfully, that is always three to five years out of reach. Um, so we love to focus on what can be done today. Uh, what we call machine learning and deep learning, um, and um, uh, that can drive tremendous value uh, for businesses and uh, for individuals already today. But in what sense is it artificial? Is it artificial intelligence the way artificial turf, is it really turf, it just looks like it? Or is it just artificial in the sense that we, we made it? Or put another way, is artificial intelligence actually intelligent? Or does it just behave intelligently. Mm, you going very deep here into things like Surly's um, Chinese room paradox on about um, the guy in the room with a handbook of definitions of how to transcribe Chinese symbols to, to have an intelligent conversation. Um, uh, and the question being who or what is having the intelligent conversation? Is it the book? Certainly not. Is it the guy mindlessly transcribing these symbols? Um, certainly Is it maybe the system of the guy in the room, the book, and the room itself that generates these um, intelligent-seeming responses? Um, I guess I'm I'm coming down on the um, output-oriented side here. I try not to think too hard about the interstates or qualia or the question whether the neural networks we're building um, have a... Um, sentient experience or the experience these qualia. Um, for me, what counts is whether we can solve real-world problems um, in a way that's compatible with intelligence um, and that explains intelligent behavior. Um, everything else, I would leave to the philosophers, Byron. Well, uh, let's, let's, we'll get to that um, part where we can talk about the effects of automation and what we can expect and all of that. But, but don't you think at some level... Um, understanding that question, doesn't it to some degree inform you as to what, what's possible? What kinds of problems should we point this technology at? 
Um, or, or do you think it's entirely academic, that it has no real-world uh, implications? Um, I think it's extremely profound, and it could unlock a whole new curve of, of value creation. Um, it's also something that, in dealing with real-world problems today, um, we may not have to answer. Um, and this is sort of maybe also something specific to our approach. Um, um, you, you've seen all these studies that say that X percent of activities can be automated with today's machine learning and Y percent could be automated if there's better natural language speech processing capabilities and, and so on and so forth. There's such tremendous value to be had by going after all these low-hanging fruits and, and sort of doing applied engineering um, by bringing ML and deep learning into um, an application context um, that we can bide our time um, until a full answer to strong AI and, and some of the, the deeper philosophical questions there is available, but already delivering tremendous value um, over the next three to five years. And um, that's sort of with my business hat on, um, what, what I focus on the most, um, together with the teams um, um, that, that I'm working with. Um, the other question is one that I find tremendously interesting um, for my uh, weekend and evening conversations. So let me ask a different one. You know, you, you started off by saying artificial intelligence and, and you, you dealt with that in terms of human intelligence. How closely, how, when, when you're thinking of a problem, that you're going to try to use machine intelligence to solve. Are you inspired in any way by how the brain works, or is that just a completely different way of doing it? Or, or do we learn how intelligence with the capital I works by studying the brain? Mm, that's, I think that's a multi-level um, answer, um, because clearly the architectures that do really well in ML and deep learning today are in a large degree neurally inspired. Um, and sort of having multi-layer deep networks, having them with a local connection structure, having them with these things we call convolutions that people use in computer vision so successfully, it resembles closely some of the structures that you see in the visual cortex with cortical columns, for example. And there's a strong argument for both these structures and the self-referential recurrent networks that people use a lot for video processing and text processing these days, um, are very, very deeply neurally inspired. On the other hand, we're also seeing that a lot of the approaches that make ML very successful today um, are about as far from neurally inspired learning as you can get. Example one, we struggled as a discipline with neurally inspired transfer functions that were all nice and biological and smooth and we couldn't really train deep networks with them because they would saturate. And one of the key enablers for the modern deep learning was to step away from the um, um, biological analogy of smooth signals and go to something like the, the rectified linear unit, the ReLO function as an activation. And that has been a key part in being able to train very deep networks. Or another example, um, when a human learns or an animal learns, we don't tend to give them 15 million cleanly labeled training examples and expect them to go over these training examples 10 times in a row to arrive at something. We're much closer 
to, to one-shot learning and being able to recognize a person with a cylinder hat on their, uh, on their head um, just on the basis of one description or one image that shows us something similar. So, so clearly, um, the approaches that are most successful today are both sharing some deep neural inspiration as a basis, but also a departure into computationally tractable um, and very, very different um, kinds of implementations than the, than the wetware um, that, we, uh, that we see in our brains. Um, and I think that both of these um, um, themes are important um, in, in advancing the state of the art in ML. Um, and there's a lot going on I in mean, areas like um, one-shot learning, for example, right now. I'm trying to mimic more um, the way the human brain with an active working memory and, and these rich associations um, is, is able to process new information and that bears almost no resemblance to what um, convolutional networks and recurrent networks do today. So let's let's go with that example. So if you take a um, a, a small statue of a, of a of a falcon, and and you put it in a hundred photos, and sometimes it's upside down, and sometimes it's laying on its side, and sometimes it's half in water, sometimes it's obscured, sometimes it's in shadows. Um, a person just goes boom, 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 and picks them out right and left, uh, just with no effort, you know, one-shot learning. What do you think a human's doing? Is it, how are we, is that, I mean, that's an instance of some kind of transfer learning that we have over, spent an entire lifetime learning that, but what do you think is really going on in the human brain, and how do you, how do you map that to computers? How do you, how do you deal with, with that? Oh, hmm. This is an invitation to speculate um, and to speculate on the topics of falcons. Um, so let me try. Um, I think that clearly our brains have built a representation of the real world around us um, because we're able to create that representation um, even though the visual and the other sensory stimuli that reach us um, are not in fact as continuous as they seem. Um, standing in the room here having the conversation with you, um, my mind creates the illusion of a continuous space around me. But in fact, I'm getting um, sort of distinct feedbacks from the eyes as they saccade and jump around the room. And the illusion of a continuous presence and the continuous sharp resolution of the room is just that. It's, it's an illusion um, because our mind has built very, very effective mental models um, of the world around us um, that highly compress the information and make it tractable on an, on an abstract level. Um, so some of the things that are going on in research right now is trying to um, exploit these notions and trying to use a lot of unsupervised training um, with, with some very simple assumptions behind them um, that basically the mind doesn't like to be surprised and would therefore like to predict what's next. Um, leveraging um, very, very powerful um, unsupervised training approaches where you can use any kind of data that's available and you don't need to label it um, to come up with these unsupervised representation learning approaches. And they seem to be very successful um, and they are beating a lot of the traditional approaches because you can have access to way larger corpuses of, of unlabeled information, um, which means you can train better models 
Now, is that a direct analogy to what the human brain does? Um, I don't know. Um, but certainly it's an engineering strategy that results in um, sort of uh, world-beating performance on, on a number of very popular benchmarks right now. And it is, broadly speaking, overly inspired. Um, so I guess bringing together um, what our brains do um, and, and what we can do in engineering um, is always a dance between the abstract inspiration that we can get from, from how biology works and the very hard maths and engineering um, in getting sort of solutions to train on, on um, large scale computers with, with hundreds of teraflops in, in compute capacity and a lot of matrix multiplications in the middle. Um, it's it's um, sort of advances on both sides of the house um, that, um, that make um, ML advance so rapidly today. So then take a similar problem, and, or tell me if this is a similar problem, when, um, when you're doing a voice, to, voice recognition and there's uh, somebody outside with a jackhammer, a human can, you know, it's annoying, but a human can, can separate those two things. It can hear what you're saying just fine, but a machine is having, you know, that's a really difficult challenge. Now, my question to you is, is that the same problem? Is that, are those... Two, com actually, the very same problem. Is there like one, one thing, one trick humans have like that that we apply a number of ways, or is that like, oh no, that's a completely different thing that's going on in in that example? Um, I think it's similar, and you're hitting on to something um, because in the listening example, um, there is some active and some passive components going on. No? We're all familiar with the phenomenon of selective hearing. When we're at a dinner party and there's 200 conversations going on in parallel, if we focus our attention um, on a certain speaker or a certain part of the conversation, um, we can make them stand out over the din and the noise um, um, because um, yeah, our mind has some prior assumptions as to what constitutes a conversation and we can exploit these priors um, um, in our minds in order to selectively listen into parts of the conversation. Um, and this has partly a physical characteristic. Hey, we're hearing in stereo, our ears have certain directional characteristics to the way they pick up certain frequencies by turning our head the right way um, and inclining it the right way. Um, um, we can do a lot um, um, to, to already use stereo separation. Um, whereas if you have a single microphone, um, and that's all the signal you get, all this avenue would be closed to you. Um, but I think the main story is one about um, signals um, superimposed with noise, um, whether that's um, camera distortions or fog or poor lighting in the case of the statue that you're trying to recognize or whether it's ambient noise or, or intermittent outages um, in, the, in the sense of the audio signal that you're looking into. Um, and the two different most popular neural-inspired architectures on the market right now, uh, which, which is the convolutional networks um, for a lot of things in the image and also natural text space, um, and the recurrent networks um, for a lot of things in the audio um, and, and sort of time series signal, um, but also um, on text space. Um, both share the characteristics that they are vastly more resilient to noise um, than, than any hard-coded or, or programmed approach. So um, 
I guess the, the underlying problem is one that um, five years ago would have been considered um, probably unsolvable and where today um, um, with these modern techniques, um, we're able to train models um, that, that can adequately deal with the challenges um, if the information is, is in the source signal. Well, what do you think when, when the human hears um, a conversation at a party, to go with that example, and you kind of like, oh, I want to listen to that. And I, I heard what you say that there's one aspect of you where you make a, a physical modification to the situation. But, but what you've also done is introduce this idea of consciousness that, that a person selecti- selectively can change their focus um, and that 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 aspect of what the brain's doing, where it's like, oh, wait a minute, um, maybe something that's hard to implement on a machine, or is that not the case at all? Um, I, if you take that idea, um, and I think in the, in the ML research and engineering communities, this is currently most popular under the label of attention or attention-based mechanisms, um, then certainly this is um, all over um, leading approaches right now. Um, whether it's the computer vision papers from um, CVPR just last week, um, or whether it's the um, sort of text processing architectures um, that, that return state-of-the-art results right now, um, they all start to include um, some kind of attention mechanism um, allowing you to both sort of weight outputs um, by by um, sort of the center of attention and also to trace back um, results to centers of extension, um, which has two very nice properties. On the one hand, um, attention mechanisms, nascent as they are today, um, help improve the accuracy of what models can deliver. And on the second hand, um, sort of the ability to trace back um, um, the the outcome of a machine learning model um, to centers and regions of attention in the input um, can do wonders um, for explainability um, of ML and AI results, um, which is something that increasingly users and customers are looking for. Don't just give me a result, which is as good as my current process or hopefully a couple percentage points better but also help me build confidence in this by explaining why um, things are um, being being classed or categorized or translated or extracted um, um, the way they are, um, because to gain the human trust in a sort of um, interoperating system of humans and machines working together, explainability um, features big. So one of the, the peculiar things to me um, with regard to strong AI, uh, general intelligence, is that there are folks who say, uh, when you say, when will we get a general intelligence? Uh, you, the soonest you ever hear is five years. Uh, very, very, very famous people who believe we're going to have something very soon. And then you get, um, the other extreme is about 500 years. You know, and that's like worrying about that is like worrying about overpopulation on Mars. So my question to you is, why do you think that there's such a wide range in terms of our idea of when we may make such a breakthrough? Mm. I think it's because of one vexing property of humans and machines is that, that 
things that are easiest for us humans um, tend to be the things that are hardest for machines and vice versa. Um, and um, yeah, if you look at that today, um, um, sort of nobody would dream of having computer as a job description that's a machine. Um, if you think back um, 60, 70 years, um, computer was job description of people actually doing manual calculations. Printer was a job description. And a lot of other things that we would never dream of doing manually today were being done manually. Think of spreadsheets, potentially the greatest simple invention in computing. Um, think of databases. Think of things like enterprise resource planning systems that, that SAP does. Um, and business networks connecting them or um, any kind of um, um, cloud-based solutions, um, what they deliver is tremendous. And it's very easy for machines to, um, to do, um, but it tends to be the things that are very hard for humans. Now, at the same time, um, sort of things that are very easy for humans to do, see a doggy and, and shout doggy or um, see a cat and, and say meow, um, is something that toddlers can do, but until very, very recently, um, the, the best and most sophisticated algorithms haven't been able to do on par. So I think part of the excitement around ML and, and deep learning right now is that a lot of these things have fallen and uh, we're seeing superhuman performance on image classification tasks. We're seeing superhuman performance on things like um, switchboard um, um, voice to text transcription tasks. And many other elements are, are falling um, to machines um, that, that used to be very easy for humans, but impossible for humans. Uh, and this is something that generates a lot of excitement right now. Um, I think where we have to be careful is um, to, to let this guide um, our expectations of um, the, the speed of progress um, in following years um, and um, sort of human intuition about what is easy and what is hard um, is traditionally a very, very poor um, guide to sort of ease of implementation with computers and, and with ML. Um, example, my son was asking me yesterday, um, Dad, um, how come that the car can um, sort of know where it is at and tell us where to drive? And I was like, son, that's fairly straightforward. Um, there's all these satellites flying around and they're shouting at us. It's currently 2 o'clock and 30 seconds. Um, and we're just measuring the time between their shouts to figure out where we are today. Um, and, uh, and that gives us the position on the planet. And it's another great invention. It's the GPS system. It's mathematically super hard to do for a human with a slide wheel. It's very easy to do for the machine. And my son said, yeah, but that's not what I wanted to know. Uh, how come that the machine is talking to us with the human voice? This is what I find amazing. And uh, I would like to understand how that is built. Um, and I think that our intuition about what's easy and what's hard um, is historically a very poor guide um, for figuring out what the next step and the, and the future um, um, of ML and artificial intelligence looks like. This is why you're getting those very broad bands of predictions. Well, do you think that the difference between the narrow or weak AI we have now and, and strong AI, is it, 
is that evolutionary? Like, are we on the path? And what, when machines get somewhat faster and we get more data and we get better algorithms, that we're going to gradually get a general intelligence? Or is a general intelligence something very different, like a whole different problem than the kinds of problems we're working on today? That's a tough one. Um, I think that um, sort of taking the brain analogy, um, um, we're today um, doing the equivalent of very simple sensory circuits, which maybe can duplicate the first couple of dozens or maybe a hundred layers in, in the way the visual cortex works. Um, and we're starting to make progress into um, some things like one-shot learning. It's very nascent in the early stage research right now. Um, we're starting to make much more progress in directions like, like reinforcement learning. Um, but um, overall, um, it's very hard to say um, which, if any, additional mechanisms um, are there in the large. If you look at the biological system of the brain, um, there's a molecular level um, that's interesting. There is a um, cellular level that's interesting. There is a sort of simple interconnection level that's interesting. There is a macro interconnection level that's interesting. Um, and um, I think we're still far from a complete understanding of how the brain works. Um, I think right now we have tremendous momentum and a very exciting trajectory um, with uh, what our artificial neural networks can do. Um, and at least for the next three to five years, um, there seems to be pretty much limitless potential um, to bring ML into real-world businesses, into real-world situations and contexts, and to create amazing new solutions. Whether that really will deliver strong AI, um, I don't know. Um, I'm an agnostic, um, so I will pull back to the position I don't know here, Byron. So only one more question about strong AI, and, and then um, let's talk about the, the shorter-term future. And, and the question is, you know, human DNA um, converted to, to code is something like 700 meg, give or take, I, uh, something like that. But the amount that's uniquely human compared to, say, a chimp or or something like that is only about 1% difference. Only seven or eight or nine meg of code is separate, gives us a general intelligence. Does that imply to, or at least tells us how to build something that then can become generally intelligent? Does that imply to you that general intelligence is actually kind of simple, straightforward, that, um, that we can look at nature and say it's really a small amount of code and therefore, we really should be looking for simple, elegant solutions to, to general intelligence, or, or is that, or do those thing, two things just not map at all? Hmm. I mean, certainly what we're seeing today is that deep learning approaches to problems like image classification, image object detection, um, image segmentation, video annotation, audio transcription, all these things, tend to be orders of magnitude smaller programs um, than um, what we did when we handcrafted things. Um, and the core of most um, sort of deep learning solutions to these things, if you really look at the core model and the model structure, tends to be maybe 500 lines of code, maybe a thousand. 
And so that's within artisan reach of an individual, um, I'm putting this together over a recap. So sort of the, the huge democratization that, big, uh, that uh, deep learning based on big data brings is that actually a lot of these models that do amazing things are very, very small as code artifacts. Um, the weight matrices and the binary models that they generate um, then tend to be as large or larger than traditional programs compiled into executables, sometimes orders of magnitude larger again. And the thing is, um, they are very hard to interpret. Um, and we're only at the beginning of an explainability of what the different weights and the different excitations mean. I think there's some nice early visualizations on this. Um, there are also some nice visualizations that explain what's going on with, with attention mechanisms in the artificial networks. Um, as to explainability of the, the real network in the brain, um, I think that is very nascent. I've, I've seen some great papers and results on um, things like spatial representations in the visual cortex where surprisingly you find triangle strips um, or um, um, sort of attempts to reconstruct um, the um, image hitting the retina based on um, reading um, um, with fMRI scans, the excitations in lower levels of the visual cortex. And they show that we're getting closer to understanding the first few layers. Um, I think that even with the seven um, megabytes difference or so that you allude to uh, between chimps and humans um, spelled out for us, um, there is a whole um, set of layers of abstractions between the DNA code and sort of the RNA representation, the protein representation, the um, excitation of these with metallization um, and, and other mechanisms that control activation of genes. Um, and then the interplay um, of sort of the um, proteins across a living, breathing um, human brain um, um, that uh, orders of magnitude of complexity above uh, the simple megabyte, a seven megabyte difference in A's and C's and T's and G's. Um, so we live in super exciting times and we live in times where sort of a new record and a new development and a new capability that was unthinkable of a year ago or, or let alone a decade ago um, is becoming commonplace. And it's an invigorating and exciting time to be alive I still um, 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 struggle um, to make a prediction um, from here um, to general AI um, based on a straight line trend. So there's some fear wrapped up though, as exciting as AI is, there's some fear wrapped up in it as well. And the fear is uh, the effect of automation on employment. And just to set the problem up, I mean, you know this, of course, it's covered so much, but uh, there's kind of three schools of thought. One says, that we're going to automate certain tasks and that there will be a group of individuals who are not able, do not have the training to add economic value and they will be kind of pushed out of the labor market and we have perpetual unemployment of some, like, like a, a big depression that never goes away. Then there's another group that says, no, 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 you don't understand. Everybody, everybody is replaceable. The, um, every single job we have. Uh, and, and machines can do any of it. And then there's a third 
school of thought that says, no, none of that's going to happen, that the history of 250 years of the Industrial Revolution is that people take these new technologies, even profound ones like electricity and engines and steam, and they just use them to increase their own productivity and to drive wages up. And we're not going to have any unemployment from this, any permanent unemployment. Which of those three camps or a fourth do you fall into? Mm. Um, I think that there's a lot of um, historical precedent for how technology gets adopted. And there's also um, numbers on sort of adoption of technologies in our own day and age um, that, that sort of um, serve as uh, reference points here. Um, for example, one of the things that surprised me truly is um, um, the amount of e-commerce um, as a percentage of overall retail uh, market share um, is still in the mid to high um, single-digit percentage points, according to surveys that I've seen. Um, and that totally does not match my personal experience of basically doing all my uh, non-grocery shopping entirely online. Um, but it shows that sort of even in the year 20 or 25 of the internet revolution, uh, and with the tremendous value that has been created and the convenience of, sort of um, having all kinds of stuff at your doorstep with just a single click, actually that has transformed maybe a single digit um, um, percentage of the overall retail market with the, with the transformation that we've seen. And this was one of the most rapid uptakes in history um, of, of new technology that has groundbreaking value um, by sort of decoupling elements and bits. And it's been playing out um, over the past 20, um, 25 years um, that, that all of us um, um, are observing. So I think while there is tremendous potential of machine learning and AI um, to drive another industrial revolution, um, we're also in the middle of all these curves um, from other revolutions that are ongoing. Uh, we've had a mobile revolution um, that um, sort of unshackled computers and gave everybody what used to be a supercomputer uh, in their pocket. We've had an internet revolution. Um, before that, we've had sort of a client-server revolution and, and um, um, the, the computing revolution in its own. Um, all of these building on prior revolutions like um, electricity or the internal combustion engine or uh, methods like the printing press. And they certainly sort of have a tendency to show accelerating technology cycles. But on the other hand, um, um, for something like e-commerce or even mobile, um, the actual adoption speed um, has been one that is none too frightening. So for all the um, tremendous potential that ML and AI bring, um, I would be hard pressed um, to, to come up with a completely disruptive scenario here. I think we are seeing a um, um, technology with tremendous potential for rapid adoption, and we're seeing the potential to um, both create new value and do new things and to automate existing activities, which continues past trends. I mean, nobody has computer or printer as their job description today. Um, and job descriptions like social media influencer or blogger um, um, or web designer um, did not exist um, 25 years ago. Um, and this is an evolution, um, um, a, a 
Schumpeterian creative destruction um, that is going on all over industry, um, in, in every industry, in every geography, um, based on every new technology curve um, that, that comes in here. Um, so I would see fears in this space as, as greatly overblown today. Um, but fear is real the moment you feel it. Um, and therefore, institutions like the Partnership on Artificial Intelligence, with the leading um, technology companies, as well as the leading NGOs, uh, think tanks, and research institutes are coming together um, um, to discuss implications of AI and um, ethics of AI and um, um, safety and guiding principles and all these things are tremendously important um, to make sure um, that we can adopt this technology with, with confidence. Um, just remember that when cars were new, um, Great Britain had a law that a person with a red flag had to walk in front of the car in order to warn um, 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 pedestrians of the danger that is approaching. Um, that was certainly an instance of fear um, about technology um, that on the one hand, um, um, was real at that point in time, but that also um, went away with a better understanding of how it works and of the tremendous value um, that it can deliver. What do you think of these efforts to um, require that when an artificial intelligence makes a ruling or a decision about you, that you have a, a right to know why it made that decision? Does that... Is, is that a manifestation of the, of the red flag in front of the car as well? And is that something that would, if, if that became the norm, would that actually constrain uh, the development of artificial intelligence? Hmm. Um, I think you're referring to the sort of implicit right um, to explanation um, that's part of the European Union um, privacy novella for 2018. Um, let me start by saying that the privacy novella we're seeing um, is a tremendous step forward um, because by the simple act of harmonizing the rules and creating one digital playing field um, across the hundreds of millions of European citizens um, um, and countries and nationalities um, is a tremendous step forward. We used to have one different data protection regime for each federal state in Germany so anything that is group-wide and harmonized is a huge step forward. I also think that um, the quest for an explanation um, is something that is very human. Um, the, the core of us is to continue to ask why and how. Um, and um, that is something that is innate to ourselves when we apply for a job with a company um, and we get rejected. Um, we want to know why. And um, when we apply for a mortgage and we get offered a rate that seems high to us, we want to understand why. Um, and that's a natural question, it's a human question, and it's an information need um, that, that needs to be served um, if we don't want to end up in a Kafkaesque future um, where, where people don't have a say about their destiny. So certainly, um, that is hugely important. On the one hand, um, on the other hand, we also need to be sure um, that we don't measure ML and AI to a stricter standard um, than we measure humans today, because that could become an inhibitor to innovation. So if you ask a company why you didn't get 
accepted for that uh, uh, for that job offer, they will probably say, "Dear sir or madam, um, thank you for your letter. Um, due to the unusually strong field of candidates for this particular posting, we regret to inform you that certain others are stronger, and we wish you all the best for your continued professional future." This is what almost every rejection letter reads like today. Um, so. Um, are we asking the same kind of explainability from a AI system that is delivering a um, recommendation today um, that we applied to a system of humans and computers working together to create a letter like that? Or are we holding them to a much, much higher standard? If it's the first thing, absolutely essential. If it's the second thing, Hmm. We got to watch whether we're throwing out the baby with uh, with the bathwater on this one, and this is something where we, I think, need to um, work together um, to find the appropriate levels and standards for things like explainability in AI um, to fill very abstract um, um, sentences like "right to an explanation." with life that can be implemented, that can be delivered, and that can provide satisfactory answers um, at the same time while not unduly inhibiting progress. And this is something um, that with um, a lot of players um, focused on explainability today, um, where we will certainly see um, significant advances um, going forward. So if, if you're a business owner and um you read all of this stuff about artificial intelligence and neural nets and machine learning. And you say, I want to apply some of this great technology in my company. How do people spot problems in a business that might be good candidates for an AI solution? I kind of start that and turn that around by asking what's keeping you awake at night. What are the three big things that make you worry? What are the things that make up the largest part of your uncertainty or of your cost structure or of uh, the, the value that you're trying to create? Um, and looking on end-to-end -end processes um, behind it, um, it's usually fairly straightforward um, to, um, to identify um, cases where um, AI and ML um, might be able to help and to deliver tremendous value. Um, so the use case identification um, tends to be the fairly easiest part of the of the game. Um, where it gets tricky in is in selecting and prioritizing these cases, um, figuring out the right things to build, and finding the data that you need in order to make the solution real. Because Unlike traditional software engineering, um, um, this is about learning from data. Um, so without data, um, you basically cannot start, or at least you have to build some very smart simulators in order to um, in order to create the data that you're looking for. Well, you know, you you mentioned uh, that that's the beginning of the game, but and that got me thinking that. You know, AI has, what, what, what makes the news all the time is when AI beats a person at a game, right? 1997, uh, you had chess, then you had Ken Jennings in Jeopardy, then you had AlphaGo and Lisa Dole, and you had, uh, 
poker. An AI beating poker, exactly. So is that a valid approach to say, look around your business and look for things that look like games? Because games have constrained rules and they have points and winners and losers. Is that a useful way to think about it? Or, or are the game things more like AI's publicity, you know, uh, PR campaign, and that's not really a useful metaphor for business problems? I think that these um, um, very publicized showcases um, are extremely important to raise awareness and to demonstrate stunning new capabilities. Um, what we see in building business solutions is that I don't necessarily have to be the human world champion in something um, in order to deliver value um, because um, a lot of business is about processes, is about um, sort of people following flowcharts together with software assistants trying to deliver a repeatable process for things like customer service or IT incident handling or um, um, incoming invoice screening and matching or other repetitive recurring tasks um, in the enterprise. Um, and already by addressing the easy to serve um, 60 to 80% of these, um, we can create tremendous value for enterprises by making processes run faster, by making people more productive, and by relieving them of the parts of activities um, that, that they regard as repetitive and mind-numbing and not particularly enjoyable. And um, the good thing is that um, in a modern enterprise today, um, people tend to have um, IT systems in place where all these activities leave a digital exhaust stream of data. And um, sort of locking into that digital exhaust stream and, and learning from it um, is, is sort of the key way um, to make ML solutions for the enterprise um, feasible today. And this is one of the things where I'm really proud um, to be working for SAP because 76% um, of all business transactions as measured by value um, anywhere on the globe um, touch an SAP system today. Um, so if you want to learn models on digital information that, that touches the enterprise, chances are it's either in an SAP system or in a surrounding system already today. And looking for these and sort of doing the intersection between what's attractive because I can serve core business processes uh, with faster speed, greater agility, lower costs, more flexibility, or bigger value, and sort of crossing that with the feasibility aspect of do I have the, the digital information um, that I can learn from um, to build business-relevant functionality today um, is um, what what is our um, overriding approach to um, identifying things that we build in order to make all SAP enterprise applications intelligent? Well, let's let's talk about that for a minute. What sorts of things are are you working on right now? What sorts of things have kind of the the organization's attention in machine learning? Um, 
is really end-to-end -end digital intelligence for processes. And let me give you an example. Um, if you look at the finance space, which SAP is well known for, um, there's huge end-to-end -end processes like um, um, record to report or um, um, things like an invoice to record, things like an um, purchase to pay or an order to cash, which really deal end-to-end -end with what an enterprise needs to do in order to buy stuff and um, pay for it and receive it or to sell stuff and get paid for it. And these are huge machines with um, um, dozens and dozens of process steps and many individuals um, in, in shared service environments and otherwise involved in delivering these services. And a single document like an invoice, for example, actually is just the tip of the iceberg for um, a complex orchestration and dance um, to, to deal with that. And we're taking these end-to-end -end processes um, and we're making them intelligent um, every step of the way. So when an invoice hits the enterprise, um, the first question is, well, what's in it? And today, mostly humans and shared service environments will um, extract the relevant information and pipe it into SAP systems. Um, the next question is, well, do I know this supplier? Um, and if they have merged or changed names or opened a new branch, I might not have them in my database. That's a fuzzy lookup. Um, the next step might be, have I ordered something like this? And that's a significant question because in some industries, up to one third of spend actually doesn't have a purchase order. Um, so finding people who have ordered this stuff or related stuff from this supplier or similar suppliers in the past um, can be the key to figuring out whether we should approve it or not. Uh, then there's the question of, did we receive the goods and services um, that this invoice is for? And that's about going through lists and lists of stuff and figuring out whether the bill of lading for the truck that arrived really contains all the things that were on the truck and all the things that were on the invoice, but no other things. Um, and that's about list matching and list comprehensing and document matching and recommender and classification systems. And it goes on and on like that until the point where we actually trigger a payment and the supplier gets paid for the first invoice um, that was there. Um, so what you see is a digital process that is enabled by IT systems, very sophisticated IT systems, routing workflows between many human participants today. And what we can do is we can take the digital exhaust of all the process participants to learn um, what they've been doing, and then to put the common, the repetitive, the mind-numbing part of the process on autopilot, um, gaining speed, um, reducing cost, um, making people more satisfied um, with their work day because they can focus on the challenging and the interesting and the stimulating cases, and increasing customer satisfaction, or in this case, supplier satisfaction, um, because they get paid faster. And so this end-to-end -end approach is how we look at business processes. And when my ML group and I do that, um, we see a little classifier, a little recommender, um, an entity extractor, or um, some kind of translation mechanism at every step of the process. Um, and we work hard um, to uh, turn these capabilities into scalable APIs on our cloud platform um, that integrate seamlessly um, with the with these standard applications. And that's really our approach to um, problem solving. Um, and it ties to the to the underlying data repository 
um, about how business operates and how processes flow. Do you find that your customers are clear with how this technology can be used and they're coming to you and say, we want, we want this kind of, uh, of functionality and we want to apply it this way. And, and they're, they're very clear about their goals and objectives. Are you finding that people are still kind of finding their sea legs and figuring out ways to apply artificial intelligence in the business? And you're more having to lead them and say, here's a great thing you could do that you maybe didn't know was possible. Um, I think it's like everywhere you've got early adopters and sort of innovation promoters and leaders who actively come with use cases of their own. Um, you have more conservative enterprises looking to see how things play out and, and what the um, results for early adopters are. And you have others who have legitimate reasons to focus on burning parts of their house right now, for whom this right now is not yet a priority. Um, what I can say is that um, the amount of interest in ML and AI um, that we're seeing from customers and partners is tremendous and almost unprecedented um, because they all see the potential um, to tag business processes and the way business executes um, um, to a complete new level. Um, the, the key challenge is sort of um, um, working with customers early enough and at the same time working with enough customers in a given setting to make sure that this is not a one-off, um, but is highly specific, and to make sure that we're really rethinking the process with digital intelligence um, instead of um, simply um, um, sort of um, automating the status quo. And I think this is maybe the biggest risk. We have tremendous opportunity to transform how business is done today if we truly think this through end to end. Um, and if we are looking to build automobiles, um, if we're only trying to build isolated instances of faster horses, um, the value won't be there. Um, this is why we take such an active interest in the end-to-end -end integration perspective. All right. Well, um, I guess just two, two final questions. The first is, um, overall, it sounds like you're optimistic about the transformative power of artificial intelligence and what it can do. But Absolutely. I would Absolutely. I would put that question to you that you put to businesses. What keeps you awake at night then? What, what are the three things that kind of worry you? Uh, and they don't have to be big things, but just kind of like what, what are the challenges right now that you're facing or thinking about like, oh, I just wish – I had better data, or if, if, if we could just solve this one problem, like? Um, I think the biggest thing keeping me awake right now is the luxury problem of um, being able to grow as fast um, as demand and, and uh, the market wants us to. Um, and that has all the aspects of organizational scaling um, and, and sort of um, scaling the product portfolio um, that, that we enable with intelligence. And um, fortunately, um, we're not a small startup with, with limited resource. Um, we are um, um, the leading enterprise um, software company, and scaling inside such an environment is, um, is substantially easier um, than it would be on the outside. 
um, sort of still. Um, we've been doubling every year, um, and we look set to continue in that vein. Um, that's certainly the biggest um, strain and the biggest worry um, that um, that um, I face. Um, so it's very old-fashioned things. It's like leadership development um, uh, that that I tend to focus a lot of my time on. Um, I wish I would have more time um, to play with models um, and to play with um, the technology and to actually build and ship great product. Um, what keeps me awake um, is these more old-fashioned things um, like leadership development um, that, uh, that matter the most for where we are at right now. And, and you talked at the very beginning, you said that, you know, during the week, you're all about applying these technologies uh, to businesses. And then on the weekend, you think about some of these fun problems. I'm curious if you consume science fiction, like books or movies or TV. And, and if so, is there any view of the future, anything you've read or seen or experienced that you think, ah, I could see that happening or wow, that really, that really made me think like, or, or do you not consume science fiction? Baron, um, you caught me out here. Um, the last thing I consumed was actually Valerian and the City of a Thousand Planets just last night um, in the movie theater in Karlsruhe that I went to all the time when I was a student. Um, and while not per se occupied with um, artificial intelligence, um, it was um, certainly stunning. And um, I do consume a lot of this stuff. Um, for me, sort of, it it provides a view of plausible futures. Um, most of the things I tend to read um, are more focused on things like space, oddly enough. Um, so things like the three-body problem um, um, and and the fantastic trilogy that that became um, really aroused my interest. Um, and really made me think. Um, but there's others um, that, that sort of offer very credible trajectories. Um, I was um, a big fan um, of a book called Accelerando, which paints a credible trajectory from today's world of information technology um, to sort of an upload culture of digital minds and humans colonizing the solar system and beyond. Um, I think that these escapes are critical to clear the hem from day-to-day -day business and the pressures of, of delivering product um, um, under a given budget and deadlines. Um, and sort of indulging in them allows me to return relaxed and refreshed and energized um, every Monday morning. All right. Well, that's a great place to leave it. Marcus, I want to thank you so much for your time. It sounds like you're doing fantastically interesting work and uh, I wish you the best. Did I mention that we're hiring? There's a lot of fantastically interesting work here um, and uh, we would love to have more people engaging in it. Thank you, Byron. If you enjoyed this episode of Voices in AI, please check out the other ones. And in addition, Byron Reese hosts another podcast about AI called the AI Minute. Every day, it's a minute or two of daily reflections about AI. It's available wherever you find your podcast of choice. And in addition, it's an Alexa skill. So it can be part of your flash briefing every day if you own an Alexa device.